Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Mariam Bonacure, a purpose-driven marketer and founder of NYC Next. Mariam recounts how living through the Iranian revolution and the sudden death of her father shaped her view of herself as a global citizen, yet one always seeking and creating community. Please welcome Mariam Bonacure. Welcome, Mariam, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? Well, I would say there's more than one. Obviously, I'm from Iran, and I lived through the revolution of 1979, but I would say probably another seminal moment was when my father passed away when I was in college. How old were you during the revolution? I was in fifth grade, so about 10 or 11. So you actually have memories of living in Iran. Oh, yeah. We all remember through fifth grade. What was that like for your family? Did you have to leave in a hurry? Where did you end up? Or did you just come to the United States right away? Because I think a lot of people have different journeys, right? Leaving the country. Us, my dad was a senior level banker at a bank that was started by Chase Manhattan. So we ended up leaving. So I, at the time, I had a younger sister who was three. So we actually left because my father had been blacklisted. I think he got wind that he was about to get blacklisted, something like that. And so we ended up leaving like we were going on vacation, just him, me and my mom, because I think they really weren't sure that we were leaving forever. And my sister was younger. So we left, you know, with sort of like vacation suitcase and then ended up never going back. My sister then was brought by my grandmother at the end of the summer when it was clear that things weren't changing anytime soon. I would say we left kind of in a hurry. We did manage to get on the plane before, which it would have been hard for my father to actually exit. So we went to Paris where my parents put a deposit down on an apartment in case things didn't get better. And then we actually did go on vacation. We went to go see my uncle who was in London, who was studying in London. And then we actually went to Mallorca on vacation where I had a burst appendix and had to have appendicitis removed. So it was quite drama filled. But then by the end of the summer, it was clear that things weren't changing. So we actually went back and took the apartment in Paris. And that's when my sister was brought out by my grandmother. And so I attended sixth grade in Paris. And then because we had green cards, we ended up coming to the States and I ended up going to junior high in um, Lafayette, California. Obviously coming here as an immigrant and starting adolescence, how was the transition for you? Because I have another guest who also kind of recounts that journey when she arrives in the country. I think she was like 12. You know, it's funny, right? Like it's it was like all out of necessity. So I don't know that I really processed it the way that I might today. So, you know, you were sort of picked up and dropped into different places and you had to survive. So I would say it's kind of all I knew. So it's hard to look back with that lens per se. But I think one of the things was... I think for me, it became sort of a seminal thing in that I became a global nomad ever since. 
So we were sort of on the move and then ended up moving from Paris to Lafayette. Then I ended up coming to college at Barnard in New York. My parents moved to London. And I joked that as they stopped moving, I kept going. Then I ended up putting down roots really in New York and staying really for the most part. I think it did make me resilient. And also I sought community and stayed connected to people in the old days, pre-internet, like as a pen pal, right? So I sort of maintained my connections because I think it was important to me. It was kind of a way to feel like I belonged in a way that really was difficult. So you mentioned the two seminal moments as being obviously having to leave Iran during the revolution and your father's death. How much is that kind of intertwined in your head and also emotionally? Like your father's real, I mean, his connection to the country and then his death in a way kind of takes away that connection for you forever. So have you processed what all of his death really means for you as an Iranian? I think the way I got through life for the most part was in being able to compartmentalize so that you could move on. So I don't know that um, that was really the way I process things. I process by sort of putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward, not so much sort of living in that moment and feeling it. We left Iran when I was 11 or 12. And then when I went to college at Barnard, my dad and my mom and younger sister moved to London. So when most kids went home to where they'd gone to high school, I was now going to London where I hadn't gone to high school and really didn't have a huge network. So it's not like that sense of coming back and having that nostalgia was really a part of that experience. And then my father actually ended up going back to Iran, even though he knew he wasn't going to be able to get out. He went back, probably would have been my sophomore year. And then he actually then had to get smuggled out through the border. And we met him in Switzerland to give him his paper so that he could meet us in the U.S. And he said, oh, well, you're going to go to college soon. It was a week before school was starting. Why don't we just take a week here and go on vacation? And actually, in that week of vacation, he had an accident and drowned windsurfing. It wasn't your regular, like he passed away in his sleep kind of experience. And I think that passing was probably even more unnerving in some ways than the revolution, because all of a sudden you became an adult at an age where you were probably not ready to be an adult. Whereas I still had my parents being the adult when the revolution happened. Can you tell us why he went back? even though he knew that he probably couldn't leave the country? Honestly, who knows? He really was nostalgic for his country and he was young. There was an incredible connection for him to the country. We all became American citizens when we were here. He didn't become a citizen. He just kept his green card because he still was pretty much connected to his country, like from a nationalist perspective. And I think he went back because there was a part of him that wanted to see if there was a pathway where he could go back. And clearly that wasn't the case. And so he ended up having to get smuggled out through the border. I think my father was complicated and there was also a part of him that sort of, you know, everybody else had been smuggled out through the border. So that didn't seem to throw him. I don't know. It's funny. I saw a friend of my father's not that long ago with the lens of today, we had this conversation and he said to me that my father had no fear. He said, you know, he bought a motorbike. He didn't know how to ride a motorcycle. And next thing you know, he had us all convinced to get on a motorbike and, (laughs) go out onto the mountains like a lunatic or when he drowned windsurfing. I never really thought about it because I grew up with a father who windsurfed, not extensively, but some because we, for a while, lived in Newport Beach. And he said, well, but your father didn't really know how to swim. Oh. I said, what do you mean? I mean, of course he swam. Like I remember he was just not a good swimmer, but 
dad never processed things that way. He just went and did things. That was just a couple months ago. I was in San Francisco and I saw a friend of the family who was giving me sort of this perspective that I really hadn't had because I, he passed and then you sort of had to keep things together, right? In a way that was difficult. How old was he when he passed? Because I would imagine not that old. So not that old. And then how did that affect your family dynamic? Your sister's quite younger than you. So now it was your mom and your sister having to kind of deal with life on whole new territory in terms. It was incredibly destabilizing. I think mom had had a lot of things happen in her life. She'd lost a brother in a car accident when I was in second grade. So I think we'd had a lot of ups and downs, but the loss of dad, I think, really hit mom. I think it was just like one too many. I felt the burden of being in charge, even though I wasn't really old enough to be in charge. I remember when my father went back to Iran, he came to see me when I was in college and said, okay, I'm going. I want you to come back home to London. Your mom and sister are going to be there. I really didn't want to come back that summer because I'd sort of gone to college and become independent. And he really pushed me to go back to spend the summer in London and live at home, which I also really didn't want to do. And there was this sense that I was expected to be responsible while he was gone. I don't know that I thought of myself as that person or had the capability, but when dad drowned, we were all in Interlochen. And I remember they came and they said there was an accident. And I remember getting everybody in the car and driving us back to the Geneva airport and getting us back to London. Like you just did what you had to do emotionally, or I don't know, even intellectually prepared for, for that. My sister, who at the time was in junior high, she'd gone to St. Paul's Girls School in London, which was like famously a great school. I was like, she just seemed unchallenged in the, I suggested to my mom, this is you go to boarding school. And then my senior year, I was in school in Paris. I'd taken a semester abroad and I called and mom said, oh, well, um, Susie got waitlisted in the two boarding schools that she had applied to. And I remember saying to her, I'm going to fly back to New York. You're going to meet me with her and we're going to go take her on campus so they can meet her. So we met and, you know, we got onto campus and they immediately accepted her. I had the wherewithal in that moment to know what to do and to step in. But again, I was still only like 17 or 18 myself. Yeah, I was going to ask. So did your mom also just kind of assume that you would take this head of the family role or you just did it because you knew that your dad expected you on some level to do that? I think she did and she didn't. It was a combination. And frankly, when she didn't, I did. When there was the void, there's no choice but to step in. I think about that now with our kids going through this experience of COVID and the anxiety that has resulted. And I think like sometimes when you have no choice, your choice is to step in. It's an older sibling thing. You bear this responsibility. And so you find yourself stepping in because sometimes the circumstances call for it. Going back to when you're, that moment when your father passed away in the accident, did you have strong emotions in that moment or did the grieving start later when the realization truly set in that he was gone? I think at that moment I was in shock. I remember this vivid memory of driving to the Geneva airport. We had to sleep overnight at the actual airport because the flights didn't go till the next day. And I remember my mom just not stopping crying. Like just, you couldn't get her to stop. She was just falling to pieces. And I remember at the time, that didn't really leave room for you to grieve because you were just trying to keep it all together. Then we got to London. I ended up 
coming back to Barnard and Barnard was quite gracious and they had heard the news and were very supportive. But a week or so later, I had to pack up and go meet my family in um, California where they had now moved after dad had passed away to go to the funeral. And I really hadn't cried up until that point. And I remember going to a friend of mine, dad's house, where they were holding, I guess, some sort of a vigil or I don't know, whatever the heck it was. And I remember walking in and there were like blown up pictures of him all over. And I remember walking in and being like, what is happening to me? Finding a bathroom and getting emotional and being like, I need to go home. It's one of those things where just you carry it with you. And I know that you said you're very good at compartmentalizing and that's what you do and you're just kind of moving forward regardless. As you've hit a certain point in your life, do you find that some of those doors that you've compartmentalized and shut have seeped open just a tiny bit so that you do have to take a pause and look at things that might have happened that might have affected you? I remember Barnard sent me to therapy and the therapist was like, come back when you're ready to talk about this. And I was like, well, when will that be? Hopefully never. That being said, like as you go through life, it does sort of show up in pockets and then you become a parent yourself. And that adds another level of complexity. It makes you incredibly resilient. On the other hand, like you carry it and of course it seeps up in, in different ways. And how has that affected the choices that you've made in your life personally and professionally? And I also want to talk about this idea of you being a nomad and your family being somewhat nomadic. How has that translated into the decisions that you've made personally for yourself and your family? I generally had this sense that things wouldn't last and you only lived once, so you better make a difference. I think that was a sense that I had. I mean, I think I always had a call to service because I remember even as a kid, there was this sense of like wanting to give back in some way, to be useful. And then I think as you experience revolution and you see what happens, I was then drawn to media because I believed in the power of storytelling and the story being able to change the world. That sort of became a seminal thing in my life in which I ended up working in, I thought I'd be a journalist, but I ended up working on the business side and the media business. And then I think just the sense of wanting to have impact and having purpose really came from this early childhood experience, really. My parents had me when they were very young, and my mother got a scholarship to come to school in the States, actually, to go to Northeastern. And so I was one. She left a one-year-old with her parents and my dad, who at the time was conscripted in the army. So he was living with my grandparents, you know, doing his duty. And I was there. My husband, who grew up in sort of a lily-white suburb of Cincinnati, he's like, how could she leave you? And I was like, people do that to have a better life. That's how you function. Your perspective changes how you look at things. She then went to Boston. So I was young. I really was raised by my grandparents. And then my father got into some program in Boston. And then I was sent a year later to join them. Now you look back, those are seminal experiences. You didn't process them that way yourself as a child. What it does is it teaches you to just keep moving. Isn't there some aspect of that that's traumatic that maybe you haven't processed or you can't process because it's so big? All those things are possible. All this is possible. I think one of the things is that when 9-11 happened, I was in New York. I, in fact, was doing a project for Deutsche Bank. So I worked in World Trade 4. And my instinct in a moment of crisis is to walk towards the crisis. It was just ingrained in you. In fact, I was supposed to be in World Trade 4. I happened to have a physical therapy appointment that was in, in Midtown. But when I got off the subway to get into the Morgan Stanley building that was being evacuated... I mean, you didn't understand what was happening. And I started walking downtown. 
And then it was like clear, like that wasn't really an option. My family at the time was living on, on the Upper East Side in a temporary apartment. And so I went to rejoin them. I was working on a project that was based in Brazil in Sao Paulo, and they wanted us to get on a plane to go to Brazil like pretty soon after. And I never thought anything of it. I was going to get on the plane. And I remember my sister at the time saying to me, I understand you don't process things like other people, but this isn't about you. This is actually about your family and they won't be okay if you get on the plane that quickly. So I think I now I'm better at acknowledging that, right? At the time I was like, well, what's the big deal? I'm just going to get on the plane. Like some terrible things happen. The chances of that happening again now are less. So I think it'll be okay if I get on the plane. So I probably didn't get on the plane that next week, but a couple of weeks later, we all began traveling again back to Brazil. We were really the only people on the plane you know, I sort of had this higher risk tolerance than a lot of other people. And I remember I had a very good friend who was a photojournalist. One of those moments where you were like, oh, that's kind of an interesting way to process it. But the instinct had sort of just taken hold, right? And so now you get more mindful as you try and process all that and think like, okay, when other things happen, you know, when COVID broke, I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, I don't have to be the first one to get on the plane. <laughs> well, at least you had the realization and know it now. But I find that really striking because what you're describing is that, for lack of a better word, the trauma of having gone through the revolution, having to leave home, quote unquote, has made you fearless in a sense, right? Like you said, you head towards the danger as opposed to running from it. And you described your dad as being incredibly fearless, that he took chances even though he probably shouldn't have. So have you thought about the parallels in that between you and your dad? Honestly, I would say that really came to when I saw a friend of my dad I hadn't seen in a long time. And it was his description of him that made me have that realization because I never really thought of my dad that way, right? He just did those things and I didn't think anything of them. It was only as he was recounting the story to me and my husband where he was like, well, he really wasn't a good swimmer. My husband was like, Miriam is like that. She has this ability to just go do things. Like he'd be like, oh, windsurfing. I guess he just like went and got on the board. <laughs> he didn't really think about the consequences of that in that sense. So I think part of it is him. I think part of it's my grandmother on my mom's side who really had lived through a lot of trauma from actually surviving the Russian revolution, immigrating from Russia to Iran, losing a son. I, you know, I think like the idea of losing a child being one of the most difficult things one can go through, being able to pick herself up from that, not just to be there for her family, but for us who she, you know, partially raised to then living through the Iranian revolution. And she was the energizer bunny. And in the family, everyone's like, oh, you're just like grandma. Grandma never stood still. She was a teacher. She wanted to be a doctor. That wasn't a thing in her in her era. So she taught, she sewed, she cooked. She was always on the move. She was the life of the party until she died. You know, she literally would come to New York and she would stay. She'd make feasts and we would have dinner parties because she loved a party. She loved gathering people. In the last Thanksgiving she spent with us, it was the last Thanksgiving before COVID, she came and, you know, at this point, her eyesight was really fading. She was much slower at walking. Before that, she was like the ultimate wingman. I would take her anywhere with me. I was going to do a podcast and she was like, if you don't mind going slowly, I'd like to come. Aww. I mean, she barely understand, you know, so she came, <laughs> she fell asleep in the chair at the podcast, huh. but she just wanted to be with you, you know, and to have the experiences. I do think that I got a lot of that from her. She just was curious and she wanted to participate. And so she actually died in her sleep early, like in March of COVID. And I remember my uncle had a Zoom. She passed away in California. So they had a 
a Zoom funeral from Newport Beach. And I was like, grandma, she's like, even in that, she was early. She was one of the first Zoom funerals we experienced. You know, she, she went as one would hope with loved ones in your sleep. And also for her, it was like, she just wanted to never be a bother. And I think that was also one of the things was like never being a burden. You know, she was always a delight to be around because that was her MO. You know, she just made it easy for everybody else. You know, she was always the one who got invited everywhere. I mean, she used to say like, everybody loves me. And we all joke about that. But they did. They really did love her because she was joyous. She was giving and she never came. I mean, I don't know what it was like for her own children, but for the rest of us and for her friends, she was just never a burden. And I think that was intentional. I think she really worked at not being a burden. Do you know what I mean? Like it was a personality. So do you think that you feel some sense of, I mean, you talked about wanting to serve and that kind of being a driving force in terms of the career choices that you've made. But do you think on an emotional level, like your desire to not be a burden to those around you also fuels you in some subconscious way or an unconscious way? You know, I think my father had service in him. Like I think, you know, as a revolution happened, there was just a sense of wanting to step in you know, I sort of grew up with a sense of not wanting to ask for help. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I listened to Brene Brown and, you know, you talk about Adam Givers and Takers, right? You listen to all these things. Now, I was very conscious of never wanting to ask for anything or asking for help. Like that felt like a weakness to some degree a burden. So I was very reticent to ask. And it's one of the things I tell my kids. I'm like, people want to help. Asking is actually, you're giving somebody a gift of being able to help you it's not really actually a strength. You think of it as a strength, but you know, it's the thing I learned over time because we feel in stepping in and helping others. I love that you said that. That's a beautiful way of looking at it because I think many people in the world have a hard time asking for help. I, I think that's the first time I've ever heard someone say that it's actually offering someone a gift or an opportunity to be of help. In terms of the career choices of you feeling this drive and need to serve, and you said that you wanted to work or you did work in media. How has that changed or not over the course of your career? Well, I think the way I showed up at work was always with curiosity and the sense of just being all in and willing to help. I was remembering a story, actually, because I did a LinkedIn post because it came to me. I remember being in a job at Turner early on in my career, and I was covering for somebody who was on maternity, and I was staying late to help somebody like I had a sales at TBS with a deck and my boss at the time came over and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing this deck for somebody. And she like flicked on the table and said, like, as if she was like flicking away not, she said, this is how much they're worth. You should go to bed or, you know, you should leave and go home. And it was so startling. And I thought to myself, like, I guess I understood politics, but I didn't, that wasn't the way I processed life. And I was like, I gave this person my word. I mean, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, great. I stayed and finished. The, you know, for me, my word was meant a lot. One of the things in revolution, you see how people are willing to sell each other downstream to save their neck. That was a very vivid experience of the revolution because as people fled or other people were trying to just save themselves, they would literally take out pages saying like, I didn't know this family or I, you know, they were evil and I didn't know it or whatever. And I just remember that sense of loyalty of like, Dear God, stand up for what you think is right. Don't just be willing to, I mean, I live that as an 11 year old, you know? So for me, that was really standing up and standing up to police and being willing to say the things you believe in that really like landed for me at 11. 
And I think that that became a seminal thing in my life. So I was like, whatever, politics, not politics. If I told somebody I'm going to do it, I'm going to be doing it. And I don't care if it's politically astute or not. Like I just, that's not how I process things. I think in a lot of the jobs I had where I was in between a lot of things, like whether at Univision where we worked across the different entities, you know, the radio station, the music label, the departments, right? Or even at NBC where I showed up and people told me I had the worst job outside of the janitor on my first day (laughs) because we had to work across the 75 brands. Nobody was interested in collaboration. I remember I used to say to the team, you have to do the right thing regardless of the politics. If you think it's a good idea, just fight for it and make it happen and don't worry about getting credit. And I think it was sort of an anti-political strategy And yet it worked because, you know, it just allowed you to look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day. And people over time, at least people who you respected were respected the fact that you just had a moral compass. I remember somebody said to me when NBC was being bought, they said, hit your star to somebody who's on the rise and you'll be fine. And I thought, well, I better like that person. I can't just hitch myself to somebody because they're on the rise. Like, I need more than that. That doesn't work for me. Can we go back to your dad's death and like you having to step into that role? Because you said something that just brought me back to a question I wanted to ask earlier. Did you have any resentment about his death in terms of like, dad, why did you take that chance? And things, my life could be so different if you hadn't. I didn't process it that way. I mean, of course, of course there were those moments. I mean, I was a total daddy's girl you know, and he was by far not perfect, but that was just my experience of him. He was the life of the party. He was really good looking and charming and just, he was fun to be around. He just had this incredible like charisma and energy. He was fun. What I missed was him. Like he would come to college. I remember freshman year, he came to college to visit me and Barnard and we all took him dancing to Palladium. (laughs) What we did with my dad, you know, he was game to do anything. He was fun and he was charming. So Like for me, I mean, of course, that had to have been deep-seated in different levels, but how I processed it, I remember at the funeral having to give a speech and I just felt lucky to have had him around for as long as I did. Now, 100% that turned my life upside down. It brought like a level of financial insecurity that I just hadn't experienced before, but I didn't process it that way overtly. It's so interesting because you've used this word process a lot. Are you at a point in your life where you're starting to kind of unpack some of this for yourself? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, of course, it requires standing still to do that. Right. I was going to say your grandmother moved a lot. Perhaps she needed to because she didn't want to confront. I say to my children all the time. I mean, I say to them, they say back to me, which is like, mom can't sit still. Like when I get anxious, I get to work. As any good therapist says, well, that's a very good coping mechanism. Yes, actually a very productive one. (laughs) I don't know that it's the healthiest of things. It's not necessarily what you want, but when things were bad in New York or, you know, when COVID was terrible, I banded together with some friends and we started a grassroots movement to help the city. You know, people are like, seriously, there wasn't enough to do. You were like at a startup taking a company public and then you started a grassroots movement like in the middle of COVID. But it really like that stepping in made me feel better. So I do process my anxiety differently than other people. It's super annoying for my family who um, are not like that necessarily. And, and they're like, the rest of us require like a recharge. Like you just have no off button. When I go on a beach vacation, I like throw out my back. So I need to go on like, you know, 
adventure vacations so that I'm constantly moving. Oh, it's so interesting. So when you have to be still, your body goes into shock. And so therefore you're experiencing pain, right? A hundred percent. I think we went once to like Nevis or something, some like glamorous vacation. And like within the first day I'd thrown on my back and I was like in pain and couldn't walk. I was like, I can't do beach vacations. <laughs> so where are you now professionally? I'm assuming you're about my age and I know a lot of women in their mid-50s face sort of the winding down of some careers, feeling empowered and wanting to make changes on their own terms. So where are you now in that process? So first of all, I stepped away from like work as we know it when I left Hyatt and decided to take a pause and be around for Nikki's senior year. So I sort of did have that moment. That was probably a year and a half. You know, I sort of lived what I dubbed a portfolio life. I joined some boards. I did an executive in residence program. I was unemployed technically. And my son would say, mom, you sure are on the road a lot for somebody who's unemployed. And I remember at the time my husband said, oh, your mom was just born free. When you accept her that way, it'll be fine. (laughs) There is this level of like, you know, I've been around long enough that they now know what they're dealing with. So I would say, you know, when I step back into this role at Nextdoor, I don't know. I sort of take it a day at a time. I'm never going to like retire and play golf. That's just never going to happen for me. So it's just a matter of like what you use your, you know, your superpowers for. So I'll always want to do something. It doesn't have to take the same form. Can you tell us what this venture is? I, after Nextdoor, so, you know, it's been an amazing journey and it's really been a privilege to work at Nextdoor and, and to really focus on community, particularly in this window where we've all needed our neighbors to such a great extent. I think for me, I really, really love New York City. I used to make a list of things I was passionate about and media was always on my list, but New York was definitely on my top three. New York was the city of ultimate diversity. It's the city that I acknowledge for having given me voice that made me feel like I belong because there was no one kind of person in New York, right? So as a person who got dropped in a million places, coming to New York was like being able to breathe. It was like you could be you. So I really do have this incredible outsized relationship to the city. I will, in my next incarnation, do a little bit more of what I started with New York City Next, which is really figure out a way to leverage the community and my network to really help in the revitalization of the city. Because I think all cities, by the way, I don't think this is just a New York thing, but for me, New York is home, need us to step in. You know, I say this is a moment for we and not me. It's going to require us all coming together to step in in different ways to help. So when you said that you took that year and a half off and then you basically were flying around the country the whole time. Not the whole time. (laughs) I mean, I did finally like figure out where I lived in Chicago. So I did still some, and I joked, I actually went to yoga. I didn't just wear the clothes and then get back on the computer, (laughs) you know. Did you make any visible, noticeable changes in patterns or was it just the Mariam just not going to the office for a year and a half? I was definitely more present. I actually had time. So the first couple months, We were still in Chicago and I was like reorganizing all the closets and discovering like, oh, you could actually sell your clothes on Real Real. I was like, wow, this is what other people do. (laughs) One of my fantasies actually having worked at Univision was that I really wanted to live by the water in Venice Beach. And so we had the chance to go do that. I couldn't rearrange somebody else's closet since I was renting their house. (laughs) So I spent the summer like just walking the beach, doing yoga at the hippie dippy yoga place down the corner, which was just amazing. I loved Venice Beach because you didn't have to be in a car. And I actually had my grandmother, who at the time was living in Laguna, come and stay with us. And I sort of did like an oral history with her. And I wrote. 
I really liked writing as a kid. And so I got back to writing, which was really a gift. And then I saw people I hadn't seen forever. I saw people from college. I saw people that I'd met when I lived in Argentina. I just got to reconnect with people. And it was a real gift. When you work crazy jobs, I used to say, like, I used to be an interesting person. Like, <laughs> I had hobbies and did things. And honestly, I've had a privileged career. I got to do many, many things. I'm not complaining. I just mean I didn't have lots of space, right? You're juggling your job, your your kids, your family, your friends, right? It's a lot of things. But I didn't have the freedom to just explore like I did when I wasn't working. So I did get to do that. I really had wanted to try yoga and I just had never had the time or the space in my head to do it. So I did all those things. The bad news is the minute I took another job, now, of course, then COVID happened. So maybe I'll blame it on that. I just went right back to my old habits, right? Where I was like 10 o'clock and I'm in the pantry, like sneaking a call to another colleague. Because <laughs> now you are working crazy hours, like in the presence of your family where they were like, is there an off button? I mean, seriously, like the world is ending and you just can't get off the phone. So I would call back somebody from the pantry hiding. So, you know, you have to recognize <laughs> sometimes that's not so good. So I do think that, you know, you fall back into those patterns, but now you have the ability to recognize that and say like, maybe that's not so great. But it's hard to change. Right. I was just going to ask, it's one thing to notice. It's another thing to change. So if there was one thing that you could change of your incredible productive habits, what would that one thing be? I would be better at working out. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm terrible at taking care of myself. And I don't mean working out. Like, I just mean like making space to be better about yourself. Because that's the thing that's easy for me to give up, right? Okay, well, I won't run. I will sweat the details to get my kids the best doctor, but I'll just go to whoever myself, right? That is just like one of those things. You come at the very bottom of the list. I would say at 53, like you got to start thinking about those things. Like my grandmother, I don't want to be a burden and I want to be fully functional. (laughs) That's a great place to end. So the last question I'm going to ask you is if there's one song you could pick that resonates with you or feels as though they've written it about you, what is that song and why? Okay, there is no question. The song that was my anthem in college or high school was I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Okay, so does that mean that you view yourself as a victim survivor or just that you can survive anything? I can survive anything. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't know that I understood the full nuance of the song, except that I just knew I could survive. (laughs) So are you doing a new venture or not? Because I know that you're putting out a newsletter, which I think is brilliant. I did a newsletter at the beginning of the year as an experiment to get back to writing. And um, that honestly was such a gift. And I am also finding a way to actually help New York. So I think that that is another chapter to come. But I do want to do it in a way that allows me to do things like the newsletter, because I do think community matters. And we've had a privilege of having a career having a wide network and being able to leverage that to help others along the journey, I think is a responsibility. I don't think that's a, you know, nice to have. I think we need to do that. I think we need to help everybody along. I think we stand on other people's shoulders and we should make sure to help others along that journey. Thank you for doing this. And if people wanted to reach out to you, is LinkedIn the best way? It definitely is because I shockingly, I know, answer all the things. And that's really what drove me to do the newsletter because I was like, maybe there's a way I can do this at scale so that I am not answering the same question over and over again, but I'm just answering it broadly. I do think it matters. Like I'm obsessed with this notion of kindness and I don't mean like sappy kindness. I just mean like being respectful and seeing someone and giving them 
you know, just time. Doesn't mean hours of time, but just it's okay to give back. <laughs> I'm going to say it's a privilege. Thank you, Mariam. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. Feeling like I should, I'm